Okay, today is June the 10th. No, 3rd. I knew I was in trouble because Carrie's birthday is June the 12th, and I thought, June the 10th? Uh, I better get busy. So, that's good. It's June the 3rd, 2010. Just a brief update. Some of you might not have known that Pete was in the hospital yesterday, Pete Monty, and he had a um, angioplasty done where they go up through the veins and... Uh, He had four stents put in. They said several of his arteries were 99% blocked and that he was on thin ice. In fact, someone uh, had to, uh, someone canceled and he was able to have this procedure done sooner than than was scheduled. It was going to be the night. And we were really glad because we didn't know how many more days he had in the condition he was in. So we thank the Lord that Pete is, uh, came through that all successful and now he's recovering. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your faithfulness. Every day You have something for us to do. And that always takes Your grace. It takes knowledge of doctrine and the will to apply it to our circumstances. First of all, we have to know that doctrine. So that's one reason that we're here is so that we can learn how to execute Your plan, to be ready, to be alert, to stand firm. We thank You that You have provided all these things for us free of charge. All we have to do is plug in, pay attention, and You will do the rest. We're so thankful for this. Pray that You will help us to concentrate, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Excuse me, just one moment. I'm checking on something. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. If 
I'm correct, this is the last verse in chapter uh, chapter 3. Is that correct? Okay. I was just looking for chapter 4 on my computer. Here we are in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, first in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, I guess we better go to the uh, verse preceding that one to get that in context. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to verse 11. So we have, Now may our Lord and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we also do for you so that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So that's where we pick up tonight in verse 13. The purpose of all this is to establish their hearts. The heart is the dominant portion of a person's soul. Uh, I don't recall any place in the Bible where it's actually talking about the physiological pump in our chest. But we use the heart in a lot of ways. Sometimes uh, we use it to refer to emotions. But this isn't talking about emotions. This is talking about the dominant portion of your soul. This is where your uh, norms and standards are stored. Uh, This is where uh, you have the ability to allow God's Word to transform your thinking. And so uh, that's what it's talking about when it's saying establish your hearts. You also have the mind, and that's a a different word altogether. You have uh, the cardia, which means heart, and that's the dominant portion of your soul. And we also have the noose, which is the mind. But the mind is, is, for us, essentially is a staging area. Uh, We don't have all of our knowledge up in our consciousness at all times. If we did, I don't know, none of us are able to do that. We have too much knowledge to be thinking about everything we know at the same time. So our mind is handling whatever issues, whatever data, whatever information is coming in. It handles it then, and that's what's in our consciousness. That's what we're thinking about. But the heart is long-term memory. If you, if you understand something, you're, you're taking in information and you're understanding, understanding it in your mind, and they call it the noose, and that's called gnosis information. It's just there for the staging period. You have to do something with it. You're either going to believe it and accept it, or you're just going to reject it or forget it because it's just there temporarily. And so if you accept the information, for instance, as we're learning doctrine and you're hearing it, you're understanding it, you're thinking about it in your consciousness, and if you accept it, then it is transferred over into your cardia, that dominant portion of your soul, and then it becomes long-term memory. It actually becomes you because you are what you think. 
And when you hear something, and you might change your mind about something, maybe you thought a certain way, but you heard some type of, uh, some teaching that had a particular effect on you, and now you're thinking a different way. It changes the way you think. According to Romans chapter 12, that's why we're here. We're here to be transformed in our mind, to be renewed and transformed in our mind. And we do that by learning doctrine. So that's, that's what it's talking about in your hearts, long-term memory. And by the way, when you hear it right now, it goes into your mind, your uh, noose, and you're hearing the information as you understand it and you believe it, it turns into what's called epignosis. That's full knowledge. That's long-term memory over there where in the short-term memory is just in the news. It always amazes me when I think about the omniscience of God. Now, omni means unlimited, and gnosis means, uh, or knowledge, of course, means, um, or science means knowledge. So when you have omni, actually, you could pronounce it omniscience. Uh, that's the two words that are put together, but it's really not uh, pronounced that way. It's called Omniscience. And omniscience is full knowledge. Now, God has omniscience, but not only full knowledge. He knows everything. And time is no issue with Him. He knows the past as well as He knows the future and what's going on now. He knows... I'm going to tell you what I told the young people last night. And their eyes kind of widened when I said this. I said, He knows what you're thinking right now. Right this very second. And that may be chilling for some. But he knew it in eternity past. There's no surprises. God doesn't have to get busy and hustle and try to uh, take care of issues because he's known it in eternity past. But here's the thing that really gets me when it comes to God's omniscience is that he doesn't have what we would, what we would call uh, the consciousness that is just temporary, you know, this, this, that I was talking about that we can only hold so much knowledge at a time. But God knows everything about everybody and everything that ever will happen, ever did happen. And it's all right there. He's thinking about it all the time. It's, 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 it, he, he doesn't have this temporary consciousness that we call uh, maybe self-consciousness or something like this. What He has is knowledge that encompasses everything. And He's thinking about it, about every person, Everything that ever happened, ever, everything that, that, listen to this, he's even thinking about what could have happened if you'd have made a different decision. So he knows everything about you. He's thinking about it all the time. And he's even thinking about all the possibilities that could have happened if things were different. Now, that boggles, should I say, the mind? <laughs> wow. Okay, so there's your heart. Uh, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So, of course, uh, this stabilization takes place only when a believer consistently learns Bible doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit from a prepared pastor-teacher. That's what he's talking about, establishing your hearts. Stabilizing your mentality, the dominant portion of your soul. And that is so sorely needed these days. People are so volatile and unstable because they don't have their hearts established. 
their norms and standards are all over the place. And once you have taken in a certain amount of doctrine, then you have stability. And every time an issue comes up, you see the news and everybody is all over the page. They, some think this, some think that. And you, you don't have to be in a quandary. Well, what should I think about that? No problem. You have stability. You have doctrine in your soul. And you don't vacillate from one, one side to the other. Let, let's, uh, this one issue that comes to my mind is that they are pushing very heavily to do away with the don't ask and don't tell with regards to homosexuals entering into the military. Well, there's a lot of people. You can talk to some people and they say, well, I used to think this way and now I think that way. And, you know, they're not really sure what to think. That's instability. For a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has learned doctrine, it's no big deal. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you should stand on that issue. And that's the way it is on so many issues. You have stability. You don't go by your emotions. Someone may come and give you some set, some scenario and it might be a, a tearjerker experience, and but that doesn't rattle you because you don't operate from emotions. You operate from knowledge because you have stabilization in your heart. And that's where you need it because that's where you make your decisions. Volition is part of this. And you make your decisions based on your norms and standards, which are uh, that portion of your heart. Then it says, unblameable. So that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father. Unblameable, this does not mean to be sinless. It means to bounce back to spirituality after sinning. That's what it means to be blameable. Right now, this second, are you blameable? Do you know if you're blameable or not? Well, you can tell. You, there's a way of knowing. I didn't ask you if you were sinless. I asked you if you were blamable. You see, whenever we sin and we don't confess that sin, then we would be under that blamable condition. But when we bounce back out of that state of carnality, we are no longer blamable. Then we are in the status of spirituality. At any given point in time, a person is either carnal or spiritual. There's only two conditions. I could take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and that's where it compares believers who are either carnal or spiritual. There's no in-between. You are either one or the other. Whenever you sin, you get outside of the spiritual realm, and you're carnal, meaning fleshly. And that is a, a, good, a good title for it, because the flesh, our body, has, is contaminated with what the Bible calls the old sin nature. In other words, it's our tendency to be selfish. It's our tendency to seek revenge. It's our tendency to be unkind. That's what we are. And so when we allow that to take over our lives, we may be tempted and we sin. We fall into carnality. And we're blamable then, culpable even. Not for going to hell, not for being condemned as a believer, but for punishment, divine discipline. But the, the trick of it, it's not a trick, but the, the way to get out of carnality and back into spirituality, which means you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the theological term, is simply by citing your sins to, to God, privately to God. And you can do that even in your mind without even saying it out loud. A lot of people want to dump their 
uh, guilt and all their frustrations and all the sins that they've done on somebody else. Don't do that. They've got enough already. They've got enough of their own issues to deal with without you going and dumping on them. Where are you supposed to dump all that garbage? On God. God requires us to do it. He's the one that takes care of it. And we go to where to find that? 1 John 1, nine. For He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that right? On the condition of what? That we... The Bible says confess, but it actually just means acknowledge it. That's all that God wants us to do is take responsibility when we sin. But arrogance especially the self-righteous arrogance, doesn't like to go there. What we like to do is just, well, everybody else is doing it. I'm better than those people over there. So if I'm better than those people over there, I'm acceptable to myself. So why isn't God acceptable? Why doesn't God accept me that way? That's staying in carnality. What God wants from us is for us to simply acknowledge, I sinned. I did it. I can remember talking to my daughter one time, (laughs) 16 years old. 16 years old is is a tough time. And I can't remember what she had done wrong, but I was trying to get her to acknowledge that what she did was wrong. She did it, and it was wrong. She wouldn't do it. She was making every excuse you can think of. And I told her, I said, "Hun, I've got all day. This, this inquisition can go on as long as you want it, but you can end it. All you have to do is acknowledge that you did wrong and take responsibility for it, and it's over. Then you can go do whatever you want to do. But until you do, it's going to go on. And you know what she did? She gave me another excuse. <laughs> I said... Do you speak English? Do you understand the English language? Do you understand what I'm saying? What did I get? Yeah, but. There is no yeah, buts. As long as you yeah, but, we're going to continue. And finally, and I don't even know how long it was, but finally, she said, I did it. That's all she had to say is, I did it. I said, but that's the way we are. And that's what we're talking about from going from blamable or culpable when we sin and don't acknowledge it. All we have to go from that carnal status into the spiritual status is to acknowledge it to God. And God says that He forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What about the sins that you committed that you didn't even know was a sin? Or the ones that you did that you forgot about? God is so gracious, He wipes the slate clean, and now you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, in your life, at any given moment, someone is driving the car. And it is either, in our case as believers, it's either going to be your old sin nature, because you give the old sin nature the ability to take over, or it's going to be the Holy Spirit, one or the other. And so when you're driving that car and you are uh, in a state of carnality, uh, just think about driving in Houston. And you get the idea. People who drive in Houston, 
are insane. When I go there, I think that I have targets painted on the trunk and on both side doors because they're after you. I mean, you go to change lanes and they'll speed up and they'll run over you if you don't see them coming. If you're on a side road and you're trying to get in, you think, i got enough time, and you do, and you start to get up, they'll speed up. And if you don't get out of the way, it's, uh, it's just too bad. I mean, that's just illustrations of the old sin nature. Now, any given time, you can put the old sin nature in the back seat and the Holy Spirit will take over. And when the Holy Spirit takes over, then you have all that, the, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all this. It take, takes over. And this has to do with whether you're blamable or not. Now, most of you already know that, but maybe some of you don't, but it's always good to hear it again. The spiritual life isn't about doing more good deeds. You're not a better person because you do more good deeds. Because you know what? God is not impressed with your good deeds. How about that? He's only impressed with what He does. Now, you can be carnal. The old sin nature produces not only sin, but also good deeds. But the only thing is, your good deeds, I'm not saying the good deeds that you do are bad. They're good. But it's relative good. It's not perfect good. And the only thing that God is interested in is perfection. And there's only one person who was ever perfect that produced works and atonement that impressed God, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about being unblameable, it doesn't mean sinless. What it means is that you have gone from the state of carnality into a state of spirituality. So right now, as I speak to you, you are either carnal or spiritual. If you're spiritual, the Holy Spirit has taken over the driver's seat and He's making all of this spiritual phenomenon that I'm teaching clear and perspicuous, lucid to you doesn't depend on your IQ. It doesn't depend on your education. It depends upon whether you're spiritual or not. Isn't that a great thing that what God has done for us in that way? Here's the next one here is holiness. Holiness. How, much, how many people could give, give you a definition of holiness? I mean, for some people, holiness is going into a church and lighting a candle. And they feel really holy because they're in a holy place, lighting a holy candle, and they might be even filled with the Holy Ghost. That's another thing that I just keep thinking about some of the things we talked about yesterday in the young people's class. They found out there's no such thing as ghosts. And somebody said, well, what about the Holy Ghost? I said, he's not a ghost either. He's holy, but He's not a ghost. He's a spirit. And uh, we got into that, and that, that took about, I don't know how long. Uh, y'all pardon me just a minute. That, that, that reminded me of something I want to bring up. We're on holiness, and this is something else also that I was bringing up. It has to do with holiness. 
I showed them this. So I'm going to show it to you because it has to do with what we're talking about. Something else they learned also. Most of you know this, but maybe someone doesn't. Um, also told them that they were saints. Okay. You see these words? I asked them. Who wants to give me a definition for all this? And I had no volunteers. Sanctified, sanctified, sanctification, saint, holiness, holy and holiness. Now, do these look like they are... We know that some of them are similar. But when you go to the Greek, you see something that you don't see in the English. And since we're looking at holiness right now, I thought I would show this to you also. There's the Greek words there. Now notice, sanctify is a verb, and it's hagiazo. Sanctified is an adjective, and in the Greek, it's hagiazo also. Sanctification is a noun, and it's hagiasmos. Saint is hagias. Holy, that's a noun. Holy is an adjective. It's hagias. And holiness, which is the word that we had, is hagoesune. Do you see how all these have in common here? That means that they all have a, a, the same root word. They have different endings because you have verbs, adjectives, and certain things. But look at this. Hagia, 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 hagia. Same basis. So, what does it mean? All these words mean basically the same thing. To be set apart for special blessing. All of those words start with hagiaz. Hagiazo, all these words. To be set apart for special blessing. Are you a saint? Yes, every one of you are a saint. And you don't need anyone to go and have an election to vote as to whether you are going to be a saint or not. Even in this very pious-looking group, if we were going to vote on anyone, if they were going to be a saint or not, apart from the doctrine we know, I doubt that anybody would get a unanimous vote. So it doesn't depend on what other people think. It depends on what Jesus Christ did. And what He did was go to the cross. He paid for our sins. And now we are able to be holy. God commands us, Be holy, for I am holy. I think that's in Hebrews chapter 10. Wow. How can we be holy? How many candles do we have to light? How many good deeds do we have to do? fact of the matter, we don't have to do any of that to be holy because we are intimately united to Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says we are in Christ. And from the point that we were born again by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, from that point on, you're a saint and you're holy positionally. Isn't that great? Let's see if I have anything else there. I'm not going to ask you the next questions for the young people. I don't think y'all can handle it. 
Well, I, you probably can. I don't know. I need to get back where I was now. That's interesting, isn't it? Did you know all those words had the same root? Okay. Holiness. Sometimes refers to our position in Christ before God the Father. Aren't you glad you're in Christ? Aren't you glad that nothing can change that? You can't change it. Satan can't change it. Even God can't change it. Because the gifts of God are irrevocable. And when you've got eternal life and God's own righteousness at the point that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's impossible to lose those or for those to be taken back. Eternal life can't be less than it is, and it is what? Eternal. If you could lose it, could it be eternal? It'd have to be temporary life, wouldn't it? At other times, this same word refers to being set apart to God in our hearts, in our soul, in that dominant portion of our soul. That would be what we looked at earlier. So let's go back where we were. So that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of His saints. Now, this word is used both for the rapture and the second advent. Here are some rapture verses. Now, let me, I'm probably going too fast. Let me, let me go back to this again. He says, So that He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness, being set apart to God for special blessings, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Now I said, uh, this, this word, by the way, coming is parousia in the Greek, B-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. It's a noun, dative, singular, feminine. And the word is used for both the rapture and the second advent. Here's the, here's the words right here, the verses. Here are rapture verses. This word parousia where it is used with regards to the rapture. Now, the rapture is when, maybe I need to explain this, when Jesus Christ comes again, but He doesn't touch planet Earth. He comes and He, he's, he comes to the atmosphere, to the clouds. And at that point, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, which we're getting very close to, that's where it gives that description. What's going to happen to us as believers if we're still alive when He comes? Instantly, boom, a twinkling of an eye, this body of corruption is going to be changed and it's going to be a body like who? Like Christ in His resurrection body. Wow. Uh, that staggers the imagination. Uh, we, will be able, we will be able to recognize each other, but we also will don't, we will, we don't need any keys because we don't even need any doors. We just right through the wall. If we want to go vertical, we just go vertical. Whatever we want, that's what Christ could do. And that's what we are going to be like. And there'll be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no pain. How about that? Good times ahead, but there's a little, little time before that we have to deal with. That's what we're talking about, the rapture. And here's the, here are the verses. 
1 Corinthians 15.23, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, 1 Thessalonians 4.15, 5.23, 2 Thessalonians 2.1, James 5.7 and 8, 2 Peter 3.4 and 1 John 2.28. The Bible has a lot to say about Jesus Christ coming again to take us home. The Bible says our citizenship is where? In heaven. We're just sojourners down here. We're just passing through. We're going to be with Christ forever. Now, that same word, parousia, that we saw for the rapture is also used for the second advent. Now, what is the second advent? Jesus Christ, from our perspective, is still coming two more times. He's coming to get us, to take us back home. And then at the end of the tribulational period, which is another dispensation, Jesus Christ is going to return and set up His millennial kingdom, and He's going to rule for a thousand years. That's called the second coming or the second advent. Now, the, the rapture is just coming to the atmosphere. At the second advent, He is actually going to touch down on planet Earth. He is going to touch down on planet Earth exactly where He took off from planet Earth on the Mount of Olives. But the earth is going to be much different then. And He is going to rule with a rod of iron for a thousand years. The reason He's going to rule with a rod of iron because this old earth is so corrupt, so decadent, so desperately wicked that it's going to take someone that has the power of Jesus Christ to set it all straight. And that day, there will be people who go to Jerusalem, which is going to be the capital city of earth, and they're going to be able to see the Lord Jesus Christ. How about that? Great things ahead. But the second advent is talking about that second time he comes. Uh, the second time. Now, the second advent, remember, is, is comparing it to the first advent. Jesus Christ came the first advent when he was born into the human race and become a unique man. He's the God-man. That's the first advent. And then he is absent from earth right now. He's coming to get his bride and take him home. Then he's coming to second advent, and he will be on planet earth ruling. Here's some verses. Matthew 24, 3. Matthew 24, 27, 37, and 39. 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. Notice, that's our verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And 2 Peter 1, 16. Uh, and see where sometimes there's confusion is this word coming. Remember we saw it right here? Coming. This Greek word parousia is used for both of these. For both of these instances. So how can you tell which one is which? Context. The context will tell you. Whether it's talking... Well, it, it will be talking about in the, in the Scriptures you will be able to tell which one it is. Two more times. Now, there is undoubtedly... This is... I think this this is a long quote. Yeah, this is from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, Bibliotheca Sacra, Volume 101, uh, that I got this note from. And here it is. There is undoubtedly confusion on the interpretation of these terms along among all types of interpreters. Professor Louis Burkhoff, whose theological uh, declarations few would presume to be uh, to treat lightly, states without qualification that premillennialists refer to the imminent return of Christ under the term parousia. 
Now let me stop right there. This may have lost a few people. A premillennialist is a person who believes that Jesus Christ is going to come again before the millennium. The millennium is that thousand-year reign that the Bible says Jesus Christ is going to come back and rule planet Earth. There are those that think that that don't don't believe that Jesus Christ is coming before the millennium, and they think they're so confused. They think we're in the that we are in the millennium now. And if you go into the Old Testament and you find out what the millennial millennium is going to be like, you think how can anyone possibly think that we are in the millennium now? Because when Jesus Christ rules in the millennium. Everything is going to be different. The curse on the earth is going to be lifted. You're going to have a lion laying, laying down with a lamb. And it won't be for lunch. Everything is going to be completely different. So those of us who believe in that Christ is coming before the millennium is called a premillennialist. That's what you are, I'm pretty sure. But we even go further than that. We say that we are even a pre-tribulationalist. Because the tribulation, the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation, is going to occur right before Jesus Christ returns. And we're in 1 Thessalonians, and we're fixing to go to 2 Thessalonians after we get through with this one. And both of these epistles, both of these letters, have a tremendous amount to say about the tribulation and the millennium as far as referencing Christ's return. And we are going to uncover every stone that we can make sure that we are right in the doctrine that we believe that Jesus Christ not only will come before the millennial kingdom comes, but even before the tribulation starts. And there's a lot of people that are confused on that. So, let's go back to this part of the sentence. Um, starting right up here around uh, Professor right there. This doesn't even hard. Can you all see that? No, I need to get something better than that. Uh, Professor Lewis right there. That's where we'll start again. Professor Lewis Burkhoff, whose theological declarations few would presume to treat lightly, states without qualification that premillennialists refer to the imminent return of Christ under the term parousia and His second coming to earth as the revelation, which is apocalypsis, A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-S-I-S. That's what the book of Revelation is. If you go to a Greek Bible, you won't see revelation. You'll see apocalypsis. Now, do you understand what he's saying? Let me just tell you. We just looked at the word parousia for coming in the Greek. And we, we showed that it's used for the rapture as well as the second advent. But now we have uh, Professor Louis Burkhoff, who is a theologically a well-respected uh, person, who says that the uh, premillennialist view will use the term parousia. In other words, he's saying if you believe that Jesus Christ is coming before the millennium, that every time you see the word parousia, it's, it's talking about that, his second coming. While 
Let me read this again. That premillennialists refer to the imminent return of Christ under the term parousia. The imminent meaning the rapture. So if you see the word, uh, under his thinking, if you see the word parousia, automatically he says it's got to be the rapture. And then he says, and the second coming, which is the other one that I was referring to a moment ago, as the revelation apocalypse, which would be referring to the second advent. So if you're reading the Scriptures, and if you were reading it in Greek, and you saw apocalypsis, which would be revelation in the English, it's referring to the second advent. If you see the word parousia, or coming, it's referring to the rapture. You got it? That's what the professor is saying. Now, he says, while he is an ardent opponent of premillennialism and might be expected to seize upon aspects, it is a singular fact that he has retained this impression from premillennial writers. You understand that? In other words, this guy is an opponent of premillennialism, but he has support from premillennial writers that this is the case. Without doubt, those who uphold premillennialism are guilty, too, often of seizing upon some phrase or word as justifying their doctrine rather than building upon broader and surer foundations. And then I have the, this is the thing. In other words, a lot of times people, uh, uh, theologians, will, see, will take a phrase or word and they'll try to spin it to, uh, to support their preconceived theology. And what we have to do is let the Bible speak to us and tell us the truth, whatever it is, because it could be that what you have always thought, your preconceived ideas might very well be wrong. And so the Bible is the one that straightens it all out. Excuse me. Now, y'all get the gist of this argument. Now, here we go. It is the viewpoint of the writer. In other words, the guy that's writing this article here. It's his viewpoint that all three terms, there were actually another one that I didn't bring in. I didn't need it. Uh, y'all are sure, I'm sure, uh, have enough to chew on here are used in a general and not a technical sense, and that they are descriptive of both the rapture, the two, you know what he's saying. The ellipsis can be used for the rapture. The word is used only of the rapture when it refers to Christ. And the word is used whenever you see them. It can mean the rapture. That's, that's, that's my whole point. This, like this, all his, all his now, but you see, someone could argue, and they would say, the rapture under this condition. I don't think it does. It's, it's talking about the second. Where, 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 just coming back down to there, into it, but that night we're coming. Struggle with that, but I, I thought, well, I don't think that this right is that he's talking about. We've already been rampant. have all reason, opportunities, and all. There but then it'd be where we'd be shut. All the saints, right? We're called saints, and you would think, well, maybe it does refer to all saints, referring to the um, second, I mean, the uh, Old Testament believers that are going to get their resurrection body at the second advent. That would be another weighty argument. And that's another reason why I I believe that he's talking about the second advent. But what I'm saying, there is the fact, though, that there are, even at the rapture, 
when Christ returns, you have souls and spirit up here in heaven that are going to unite down here with their body in the earth, wherever it is. So in that sense, they'll be coming, but I don't think that's what it's saying here. Yes. This is this is a hard one. The word "all" is something is is a word that uh, I have debated people on numerous occasions with regards to this word, because sometimes "all" is used "all" without exception, meaning everyone. Sometimes it's "all" without exemption or without exception. Uh, exemption, I mean, that means all of certain kinds, but not all inclusive. And the same word, this this word in the uh, in the uh, Greek. Does anybody have their their uh, computer open? I'm, I'm almost certain it probably would be pan, p-a-n, because that's the word for all in Greek. And it, again, it's used. The same word can be all without exception, and sometimes it's all without exemption. It could be all of all types of people, but not all people. And sometimes it's all people. You understand? And so you have to. <laughs> Whew, it gets this. This is tricky, but we have to analyze it. We have to try to decipher. Is he talking about the rapture? Or is he talking about the second advent? Advent. And my vote is for the second advent. But you saw those writers that, and these are theologians. That word there is parousia, and some say anytime it's parousia, it's it's the rapture. But that can't be because when we just went, remember all these verses? Look at them on the second advent there. And all those are parousia. So it can't be just for the rapture. Did I see another hand over here somewhere? Oh, okay. Yeah, he, the whole, he's talk, here's another thing, too. He's talking to church-age believers. And that whole context, you know, he's telling them that to establish their hearts blameless and so forth. So it could be taken that he is only referring to church-age believers. And the all could be that. But it's hard to, to, whether it's going to be all, I think it probably is going to be uh, all inclusive, the second, I mean, the Old Testament saints also. But you can't make that complete argument just on that one word, all. Because there's other people that that uh, believe that the, well, I'm not even going to tell you the other, the other beliefs. You, all have, <laughs> you just need to hear the right one right now. You don't hear the... <laughs> You get mixed up. Okay. Uh, so it's the viewpoint of this writer that all the terms that are used are in a general sense and not technical, and that they are descriptive of both the rapture and the glorious return to Christ to the earth. Now, here's the, the last thing here. It, meaning parousia, which is our Greek word for coming, has come to mean not simply presence, but the act by which the presence is brought about. Well, I already gave you that, didn't I? Okay. His return to the earth before the millennium. The conclusion is inevitable that the same word is used in all these passages in a, in a general and not a specific sense. So what that means is that you have to use your systematic theology and compare doctrine with doctrine and look at the context to be able to determine whether it's referring to the rapture or the second advent, you can't tell by the word. 
That's what all that means. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, even the, the blameless. You know what I was doing today? I, I didn't even. I don't have it here, and I don't know exactly when I'm going to give you this. But there are so many words in the Bible that have a double meaning. They mean they have, and I don't just mean in the dictionary sense. For instance, uh, we have the word sanctification. And we're going to be getting, getting into it uh, shortly. Uh, we just saw it up on the board a while ago. Uh, we have the word sanctification for positional sanctification. The moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, we are taken by Him and set apart for special blessings. Period. Okay? No matter what. You can be the biggest believer stinker on earth, but you're still a set, set apart for blessing. You're still going to get a resurrection body. However, there is an also an experiential sanctification. And that's not for everybody. That's just for those who grow up spiritually. And they're set apart for special blessings, special super grace blessings. The same thing with overcomers. Every one of you are overcomers of the world when you believe in Jesus Christ. And there's verses that substantiate that. But there are also verses that have to do with overcomers that are only for those who overcome it experientially that grow in grace and knowledge and they're going to be rewarded and decorated, they're overcome, they have overcome in a special sense. And that's another thing. There is um, also the uh, first resurrection. Of course, it doesn't say first in front of it. It just says resurrection. But there is a first resurrection and there is a second resurrection. Same words used, but they, the first one is all-inclusive of all believers that come in Separate, at separate times, but the second revelation, I mean resurrection, is for unbelievers that are going to be resurrected and stand before Jesus Christ at the second advent. There's also, I could just go on and on with the, the different meanings of, of these words. Remember, Michael, we were just talking about this the other day about the double. You even said justification was one. There's, a, there's, there, and in all this context, you have to have the scriptures to be able to determine what these things are saying. And that's what we were doing here with this word parousia. Are y'all all now sufficiently mixed up so we can start chapter 4? <laughs> okay, we don't have much... Oh, was that time? Wow. Oh, where did the time go? Well, let's just at least look at it. What you see up there at the top, by the way, is what says what the Greek Bible says. That's pros Thessalonike Alpha. That's first Thessalonians. It's actually uh, according to Thessalonians A. So we have verse four. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instructions as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may Excel still more. Now, what do you see in that verse? I don't. Even, we don't have time to go into it, but even in that verse, what are you seeing that we have seen over and over with Peter and with Paul? And he's doing it again right here. He is telling them something they already know. Now, if they can do that, I 
can do that. <laughs> Just as you ask, they were already walking this way. And he is telling them things, and he wants them to excel even all the more. You see, there are some people that want to hear something new. Heard the same old thing. Teach me something new. Well, sometimes we don't need something new. We need to hear the same thing to inspire us and motivate us to take it to another level. I think that God uses prepared pastors and the Holy Spirit guides them into giving you what you need to hear. Because a lot of times, I'm talking about a lot of times, I come up here and I have my notes, I have my PowerPoint, I'm ready to go. And I hardly spend any time there. But somehow I get off on something else and I'm teaching something I wasn't even prepared to teach. I wasn't even thinking I was going to go there. But there you go. We're off on and running on this other thing. I don't know why. I mean, I can't say that... Uh, well, I, this is what I'm saying. This is how the Holy Spirit leads because He knows what you need to hear. I don't. And sometimes I'll be teaching something. Just A, a good example, a while ago when we had the saint under holiness, we had that whole list of things. I didn't have any idea I was going to you know, bring that up and say it. was just when I started. I said, oh, yeah, holiness. I was just there yesterday. Uh, let's go and look at that. See? And we spent some time on that word so you can understand. These words that sound very holy, very sanctimonious, they sound very good. People like to say them. It doesn't make you spiritual. If you don't know what they mean, you might as well be saying razzmatazz or anything else that comes into your mind. We have to know what these words mean. Not what you think they mean. And with regards to all that Hagiazo and Hagiazmos and all, all those is essentially the same thing. God has done something for you. He has set, set you apart from everyone else for what? Special blessing. And you know what's going to determine the quantity and the quality of those special blessings? Is you. Your attitude towards God in His Word will determine the quantity and the quality of the blessings that you have in an experiential way. And what happens is when you are experientially sanctified, when you keep growing and growing in capacity, God keeps pouring and pouring blessings in. And I don't care how much capacity you have, it's not big enough to contain all the blessings that He's pouring. And it will spill out. Your cup will overflow to others. It's called blessings by association. And the best thing you can do for those that you love, rather than living on money or, or land or try to anything else, is to grow to spiritual maturity and God will bless you so much. He's got so much blessings for you that it will spill out to them. What a wonderful God we have. Well, that's it for tonight. We'll continue this next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for who and what you are that you treat us in grace always and you have given us your promise that your grace is always sufficient. Now we can look forward to that wonderful, great time when Jesus Christ returns and we will meet Him in the air in a moment we will be translated into our 
resurrection body. And so will we ever be with the Lord. In the meantime, we are to hold our ground and to stand firm for the faith and continue to grow in grace and watch your blessings overflow. We thank you for all of this and we pray it all in Christ's most high and holy name.